Hi, this is Jason Cascarino. Thanks for listening to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of the Remaking Middle School Initiative, whose founding partners include Youth Next, the University of Virginia's Center to Promote Effective Youth Development, and the Association for Middle-Level Education, or AMLE. You can learn about Remaking Middle School on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. Now, here's this episode. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we explore the many facets of young adolescents in the middle school years, from the adverse to the awkward to the awesome. I'm your host, Jason Cascarino. Today I talk with Chris Baum, founder of Argonaut, a new live online community that offers young adolescents opportunities for hands-on experiences to develop wisdom, kindness, and real-world skill. Chris has founded a handful of successful organizations, all centered on the learning and development of young adolescents, including the Spark Program and Millennium School. His drive to build new and different opportunities for middle schoolers comes in part from his own unhappy experience in those years and a frustration he has with the way he sees that middle school is most often perceived. Ask a random passerby on the street to free associate around the word middle school and you'll see it so clearly. It's just, it is culturally the lowest imaginable expectations. I mean, compare that to any other age group. You know, ask someone to talk about early childhood or kindergarten or high school, college. Right. Um, right. When it comes to middle school, we have culturally decided that this is a wasteland and mm -hmm. that our expectations should be appropriately low. And to me, it is the biggest missed opportunity in education. Chris and I talk about his strong feeling that the middle school experience needs to be more relevant for young adolescents and cater to what young adolescents are here to do, in his words. Also, the advantages of creating a laboratory school in the middle grades with freedom to experiment and then share things of use to the field. His approach to translating the science of learning and development into specific educational practices and what fuels his unsatiated entrepreneurial proclivities. Here's my conversation with Chris Baum. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. It's really exciting to have you here. Great to be with you, Jason. I've been really intrigued by your career. I think you'd be put into the camp of what we are referred to often as serial entrepreneurs. Uh, you have a little, you have the title founder or co-founder in most of what you've done. Uh, I want to talk about that in a, in a minute. But first, I believe you started out as a middle school teacher. What was your path to that? Were you always drawn to education or was there something that happened in your life that, that drew you there? Yeah, well, you know, I went to college with not a lot of clarity about what I wanted to do, except for one thing, which was I knew that whatever it was, it would not be education. <laughs> that was the only, <laughs> only certain right. thing in my mind. Yeah, you've clearly and failed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that was when you say something like that, you know the world is going to play a trick on you. And yes. you know, the reason for that was, you know, before I ended up as a middle school teacher and other things working with middle school kids, I was a middle schooler and I was a pretty unhappy one. Um and and frankly into high school too that those were years where I I felt like such a paradox that I was fortunate to connect with the way academics were taught and so felt academically successful. And in every other way, felt extremely unhappy and unsuccessful, socially, emotionally, feeling like I fit in, you know, 
feeling like I actually was doing what I wanted to do, had a sense of creativity that that was not present uh, in my education in those years. So that's why I said I want nothing to do with this <laughs> when I left <laughs> it. And then sure enough, got pulled back to it when I realized that for my own healing and for the contribution I wanted to make to the world, it was going to come back to education. Yeah. You, you, I read that you, you say that your time as a middle schooler was crummy. I think that was the technical term that you, you used. <laughs> yes. Um, how was being on the other side of that as a teacher? Mm. Uh, did that give you more insight into the youth experience? Yeah. You know, I don't think I, I didn't see it this way as clearly as at first, but from the moment I walked into a middle school classroom in, in West Philadelphia, where I started off as a student teacher, I was trying to be the kind of adult that I did not have in my own middle school journey, which was someone who saw me as a whole person, was not just trying to convey a unit of knowledge, but was in many ways closer to a mentor and had less of their own agenda. Still an agenda, but their agenda was mm -hmm. much more aligned. Uh, mm -hmm. And so right away, as I walked into that classroom and at first was teaching science and developing science curricula, I immediately ran into the sense that when I just stood up in front of that classroom and began delivering, that it was not working. Uh, it, was, it was doing what, I, what had been done for me, and it felt irrelevant. And that, that was what hit me right in the face in that first year of, of student teaching, which was, I have to do something that makes this feel interesting and relevant and connected to the real world. Otherwise, I'm an entertainer here and, and not a very good one <laughs> as a student teacher, especially. Mm. Uh, so that, that prompted Spark and the work that uh, took me forward from there. Yeah, let's get into that because there are a lot of threads of what you just said in all of the work that you've, that you've done. The first among these, the series of organizations that you created, at least that I know of, was the Spark Program, which works with middle school age youth. And full disclosure for listeners, we should say that I succeeded you as CEO of Spark and had just the great privilege to lead the organization for a time. Spark works in the out of school space, and it brings together this really wonderful blend of experiential learning and relationships, mentoring, career exploration, community connection, social and emotional skill building. I know that the program and the model evolved over time, but when you first started out, what problem were you trying to solve? It sounded like you sort of were articulating some of these, but maybe more a better way to think about it is what opportunity were you trying to take mm -hmm. advantage of? Mm. You know, uh, the problem that first struck me around relevance was related to the problem of isolation. So I was working in schools where I realized you know, my privilege became more and more clear as I did this work. And I recognized how I had access to parts of the city that my students did not have access to for no good reason other than... And this was in Philadelphia. This was in Philadelphia. Yeah. So, you know, it literally crystallized in my mind one day. I, I walked out of my school, was turning back toward uh, the university campus where I was living. And I saw, you know, the skyline of Philadelphia. And I realized that I, I knew people in those tall buildings. And I knew people in lots of different professions, you know, a statement of my privilege and luck. And that my students did not, um, that they generally did not have access to seeing people use the science skills that I was trying to teach them. And I, I had been feeling very frustrated as a first year student teacher. I, I wanted it to be more engaging. I wanted them to lean in and see how this could 
open doors. And I was really struggling to do that. And as I looked at that skyline, I just realized I need to be a bridge. You know, this is, I have this privilege. They do not. I want them to see the relevance of this firsthand rather than just take my word for it. And so that, that led me to the idea of apprenticeship. Can we kind of bring back what in many ways is the oldest play in the book when it comes to education, <laughs> just the, the mm-hmm. simple pairing of someone with skills and, and knowledge and insight uh, with someone who's interested in gaining those. And in the course of that one-on-one relationship, really a mentorship that's grounded in something concrete, could that reignite a kid's love of learning? Mm-hmm. And that that became Spark, and you know, from a, a tiny pilot with a dozen kids trying to match them uh, to different jobs, it grew into you know, this whole organization where we tried to show and are and are showing that when middle school kids connect what they're doing in school with someone who has a job that excites them, that they feel passionate about and interested in, and get to go there in person, they their level of motivation dramatically changes. They're much more likely to stay in school. So that um, that has been quite a journey <laughs> since then, and I'm, I'm so honored I got to pass it to you um, yeah. many years ago. Well, I was honored to to, to take it on, and it was definitely. Um, it's funny that you use the word frustrated because when I branched out from Spark, that's sort of the feeling that I felt was frustration that more people weren't paying enough attention to middle school. Mm-hmm. That a lot of what we talk about and a lot of the investment in the education space tends to skew towards the early end, right? Early childhood and early literacy. And then it sort of skips over to high school graduation and college and career readiness and and workforce transition. And all of those are to the good, but there's a missed opportunity there in the middle, one, to sustain any gains that we've made early on and also to set young people up for success earlier uh, as we pass them, as we pass them off. So it's interesting that this, that, that kind of frustration was, you know, I, I sort of viewed it you, you from a very visceral way. Like there's just an, a, 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 you were living structural inequity or you saw it, you were visualizing it and internalizing it. And I was sort of seeing it from a, like a broader sort of policy or or field you know uh, perspective but the, the the feeling was kind of was kind of the same is that we're we're not paying enough attention to these kids and we're and we're losing we're we're losing them i hope that's not too dramatic but i feel like this this notion of disengagement that you say is is real and it comes out it comes out in the data that's it and you know ask a random passerby on the street to free associate around the word middle school and you'll see it so clearly. It's just, it is culturally the lowest imaginable expectations. I mean, mm-hmm. compare that to any other age group, you know, ask someone to talk about early childhood or kindergarten or high school, college. Right. Um, right. When it comes to middle school, we have culturally decided that this is a wasteland and mm-hmm. that our expectations should be appropriately low. And to me, it is the biggest missed opportunity in education. And not to say that it can't be changed. And there are you know, many exciting things that are starting to change that. But mm-hmm. until now, we have, I think, largely missed the potential that happens in those years. Well, let's shift to the opportunity and the potential here. When you left Spark, you went on a quest of sorts. I remember talking with you at the time and being rather envious, frankly, of the of this learning journey that you that you went on, which was the lead up to you co-founding Millennium School. It seemed like a luxury in a way, just in terms of having the time and the space to do that. Tell me a little bit about what you did, why you did it, 
and what you discovered that shaped your next venture? So that time was the most incredible luxury, I think, of my <laughs> professional life. I had three years to try to peel back as many layers as I could identify and just keep asking the question, what is the point of adolescence, <laughs> more or less, you know, to say it just simply, mm-hmm. what are adolescents, particularly early adolescence in middle school, what are they here to do? And if we could step as far back as we can, given that we all were raised in this system, so it's hard to really be clear of it, but to step back as far as we can, not worry about, you know, their standardized test scores for a moment, not worry about getting them ready for high school for a moment, but just say, what is the best understanding of human potential of this age? And if we, you know, can we integrate the neuroscience, the psychology, adolescent developmental science, and then talking to a huge number of kids, parents, teachers, researchers, school leaders, all of that was just like a three-year cooking process, (laughs) putting (laughs) all these ingredients in a pot Mm -hmm. and trying to come out with the simplest possible answer of what is the point of being this age? And then can we design a school that really meets that and is working with what is natural for this age rather than trying to fight against it, as I think so often middle school does. Mm. So, you know, to sum that all up, even if more simply, I came to feel that there are three questions that synthesize what middle schoolers are here to do, you know, whether they're in school or out of school, just developmentally that age in life. The first question is, who am I? And that is about the formation of an authentic sense of self. Because that part of their brains that sees the social world really turns on right as they're entering middle school. It creates a kind of identity crisis where it's hard to know if it's okay to be you. Because all of a sudden you realize that you're being judged and grouped and in this group and not in that group. And why is that? And I think a lot of middle schoolers, when they're not in a safe environment, they they stop trying to figure out who they are and just start copying some behavior that seems like it's getting social credibility. And that's a huge loss. Then they're, they're not playing to their strengths. They're trying to be someone else. So that's question number one, who am I? Uh, question number two is how do I relate to others? I think this age is the, the most powerful time to learn social and emotional intelligence. And I know you know this research that you know, your emotional intelligence uh, really trumps IQ alone when it comes to lifelong outcomes. Now, whether that's you know something as hard as your economic outcomes or something a little more nebulous, but more important uh, in terms of ratings of happiness even. Mm-hmm. So it's the time when you're, you're most oriented to your peer world and desperate to know how to make friends, how to repair friendships, how to be in groups, how to lead groups, all of those things. And then finally, the question of what will I contribute to the world? And that's back to where I think Spark and, and the apprenticeship work can be so powerful is it has to feel relevant. You know, the fastest way to piss off a middle schooler is to baby them and treat them like they're in elementary school and, you know, give them cute activities and worksheets that <laughs> uh, doesn't go over well. And for good reason that they recognize that they have more and more capacity. And that's why they can see through a lot of, you know, phony adult behavior that they want to feel like what they're doing is valuable beyond the walls of their school. 
I was able to get a taste of Millennium School. I came and visited the school itself uh, a few years ago and then had the opportunity to research and write a case study on the professional learning side of, of the organization. First off, I think you know, being a private school, there, I'm guessing, were things that you were able to do that maybe a typical middle school would not be able to do, at least at first blush. And I think that's fair to say. And I think that's at least in part why you and your partner, Jeff Snipes, developed a professional learning component to bring some of those elements into traditional middle schools. But I'm going to give a try here. When I was at the school, I remember students in classrooms, but I don't think there were desks. There may have been tables, and most of the students I saw weren't sitting. They were up and they were about and they were mingling with each other. There was lots of discussion there were lots of artifacts, things the students had produced all about the classroom. The teacher was in a facilitator role of sorts. There was no classic didactic teaching and learning and transfer of knowledge. I'm sure you pr maybe had to do some of that for like foundational math and, and reading schools, perhaps. But by and large, it was very student-led and I guess you might say constructivist. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but you, pr you probably have another way of describing it. But the students were driving their own knowledge creation. How am I doing so far in painting this? Brilliantly. Picture? No, that's, that's exactly it. <laughs> so the, that's the, that's the, what we're going uh, for. Yeah. Fill out, the, fill out the, the finer bits for me. Yeah. No, you, you nailed it. And it's There were two really fundamental um, structures at Millennium that I think mark it as different from a, a traditional middle school. And one is what you were describing, which we call quests. And that is a, a method of doing project-based learning. So at Millennium, the school year is organized around uh, terms of six weeks long. And in each term, students are taking on two quests. So one tends to be more humanities-oriented, one more STEM-oriented, but both are interdisciplinary. So what you saw is you know, for almost the entire morning, each morning, uh, they are in a classroom working on a project collaboratively. One of the key learnings from all that research was that middle schoolers need to be social. If, if you are trying to get them to be still and individual and receptive on their own, um, you know, that takes a lot of energy to do. They can muster it for some time, but it's really working against what their drives are. So if you want to work with that energy, we use a lot of seminars uh, where students are learning how to have discussions with each other. We use project teams where they're taking on different roles, having to challenge each other, hold each other accountable over a big six-week project that they invested so much energy into. Uh, we really try to keep the didactic kind of traditional teacher lecturing portion to be fairly low, not eliminating it, but in a two-and-a-half-hour project block, which is how long our morning blocks were or are, a teacher might lecture for 15 minutes of that. And that's just to give students the input they need and kind of a, a beginning point where then their project teams can go off and run and the teacher can go around as a facilitator and support those teams right at the edge that they're working at the moment. So that was, that was one of the big innovations, uh, the quest learning. The other is what we call forum. And that is really the heart of the middle school. So to me, the heart of any great middle school is the advisory program, uh, or it can be. That's because I think with how much middle schoolers are changing on every possible level, physically, emotionally, neurologically, um, they need a safe place outside of their family where they can talk about what feels most important to them and feel like it's completely okay to reveal my, my messy self here. And I'm going to learn how to be present for others as they do the same. 
And together, you know, with a good adult facilitator in there, we will be there for each other as we go through the ups and downs of this much rapid change. I mean, I think as adults, it's almost hard to remember what it feels like to change that rapidly, to wake up in a slightly different body and mind every single morning. Like you need a group where you can process that <laughs> and you yeah, can't expect yeah. someone to learn at their full potential without that group. Yeah. So, it's the it's the greatest expansion of human development outside of early childhood, except the difference is, is that they're kind of aware of what's happening, or they're trying to at least be able to process what is happening, even if they're not fully aware of it, right? That's it. And as you know, thinkers back to Montessori and before called it, it it's the social birth. So it's that huge expansion of human capacity in the social world. And so it's not something that's just, you know, going on in the backgrounds. Um, it needs to be processed socially. And you're, you're figuring out new ways of relating to people, your parents, your friends, teachers, et cetera. So, so that advisory work we call forum and uh, is so essential. We give time to it every day. And then we had this privilege being um, an independent school to allocate essentially all day Wednesday uh, for students to be in their forum together doing other types of work. Uh, there was an expeditionary learning component where they went out pre-pandemic into the city around them. But that just signifies how important it felt that they have that group, a stable group of students that they're with all three years of middle school, same grade, mixed gender, same teacher, uh, where they develop a sense of really deep trust. Yeah, you mentioned uh Millennium being an independent school, but Millennium Schools, the organization does work with traditional public schools in building these kinds of capacities. I remember visiting AP Giannini Middle School in San Francisco, which I think, is, if I recall, was the largest middle school in San Francisco. So when you think about your small school environment, which has great advantages, this was a very large sort of comprehensive middle school. But they were able to incorporate through advisory the forum concept and, and, and principles. And so you know, there was sort of a case to be made that, you know, could there be, and I remember them really working hard to structure things. They had to split cohorts of kids, you know, down. They usually have yeah. cohorts of, let's say, 30 or so. And so they had to come up with a scheduling method to be able to sort of get that down to around 15 or so, which really probably for forum is the max you can you can go. You want to really kind of small groups to get at the, some of the things that you're talking about, which is that relationship, that connection, that feeling sort of safe environment, et cetera. But these practices, even though you kind of incubated them, if you will, in Millennium School, are translatable um, into into traditional, what we would see as traditional middle school environments. That's right. And this is something we grappled with so much in the founding of the school, which is, should we try to build this as a public school, as a charter school, as a private school, knowing that whatever structure our school took, we wanted the lessons of this to impact and be of use to the public school system. That that's that's where you know ninety five percent of kids in this country are, and there's so much opportunity to make improvements there around middle school in particular. So we ended up choosing the private school route because we thought it would let us be the best laboratory. Zooming out for a moment to a systems level, it feels like there are not enough lab schools in the world. Just to put it put it directly, that not enough schools where they have, for whatever reason, you know, connected to a university or as part of their founding charter been given permission to take bigger bets. And I think we need that if we're going to improve the field as a whole. You know, most schools don't have that privilege and they're going to make more incremental changes. So some schools need to make the big bets, some of which will fail. 
and then focus on distributing that knowledge to people who are not as able to take a, a risky move and change their whole schedule one year, because that's something that most schools really can't do, at least not on a regular basis. You know, with Millennium, we changed our schedule probably every week for the first year, <laughs> tinkering right? toward finding mm-hmm. something okay. that worked. So our philosophy is, you know, we have the privilege of being a lab. That also gives us the responsibility of continually teaching everything that is happening here, sharing what doesn't work openly, sharing what does work, not expecting that others are going to replicate the lab, but that individual tools that we create here will be of use. And it's been so exciting to see actually much faster than we thought that that's the case and that schools all over San Francisco, other parts of the U.S., even other countries are taking the Quest method or taking the forum method, uh, taking some of the professional development that we created and implementing that in schools that in other ways still look traditional, but where this is a big step toward where they want to go. In our previous conversations, you have said that Millennium was your attempt to take the knowledge base around learning and development of young adolescents from the biological, psychological, cognitive, social, emotional, just the whole range of what we know about this stage of human development and translate that into a learning environment that is really tailor-made for them. Uh, that's, the, that's the term that I often use. Like how can we tailor-make a learning environment for this particular age range, this particular time period? Talk me through a little bit more of your approach to that. Again, people would say, well, you have the advantage of starting a school from scratch, you know, rather than iterating on something that was already there. But in general, how did you go about this project of using the science of learning and development as a base and then crafting a learning environment around that? So our approach was first to do this foundation of research and let that inform us, even if it leads us to significantly different structures than our traditional, and then to have such a deep focus on listening and letting students inform how it evolves from there. Because we knew that, you know, we'd have this grab bag of exciting ideas. And if we're lucky, half of them will work and half of them won't. And it's going to be up to students to inform us and and wake us up to that, which they did gleefully. Is that right? (laughs) They weren't shy. Yeah, they weren't shy about that, which became a part of the culture of the school, the the level of ownership that students have when you invite them in as school designers with you. But to be be more specific about it, we, um, we knew that from the neuroscience, there's an incredible research around how long term memories are formed, for example, and that information that comes into our minds without emotion encoded with it is often rated by our our mind essentially as less important and is more likely to just stay in short-term memory and then get, get tossed. So that informed our decision that when we create a project, we want it to have a social component. We want it to be something that helps students think about their identity, that engages their emotions and their questions about who they are. And we wanted it to be short enough that they could maintain their excitement for it. It still have some struggles as they're trying to figure out how to present something back to the world, um, but that would feel um, like an adventure, like a burst of learning. And that informed our decision to have projects be six weeks in length, which felt like the balance between keeping it lively, keep the excitement high, um, but enough time that they could have a meaningful uh, outcome and present something back. Another decision that came from that was because it's so important that we want students and faculty to feel like they're on the same team, 
and that faculty are really facilitators of students' interests and abilities. So we decided that every project, the, the ultimate presentation of their learning would happen to an external audience so that students know, for example, they're doing a project. Um, we did one around the houselessness and homelessness crisis in San Francisco and how to respond to that. And so they studied it, they created proposals, and their final audience was not just their teachers or parents, people who they know are highly subjective, hopefully for in a good way, but was to experts in the field, people who were leading nonprofits, who were leading city government agencies, who were trying to tackle this with every hour of their working lives. That way, students have this kind of emotional climax of realizing, I need to be able to impress someone who doesn't know me, isn't you know related to me. <laughs> just wants to see if I actually did anything worthwhile. And teachers too feel like, I also want to impress this person. I want them to come back again next year. I want my students to shine. And that, that helps to really align students and faculty and create this kind of um, emotional peak moment when they're having to present. It can be scary, but it also really creates um, a sense of accomplishment when they're on the other side of it. And I imagine it's sort of a, a deeper way of getting at student voice, where it's not just student voice, but it really is youth participation, that their voice is heard and understood and valued. So it's not just giving them a, the platform to say what they want to say, but also it's, it's connected to, like you were saying, decision makers, people who can actually do something about what it is that they're, that they're saying. And that brings that kind of authenticity to, to the, the project. Exactly. And the sense of relevance that students are craving, that their voices are relevant. You know, they, they may tend to slightly overestimate how mature they are in some ways, but adults, I think, even more so underestimate them. And we all know that they, they tend to come to the level of expectation that we hold for them, you know, in, in good or bad ways. So it felt so essential that they their voices were loudly heard, not only within the school about how the school should evolve and through the administration, but also in each academic project that their voices were being sent beyond the walls of the school. And they knew they were representing the school in that way. And now you're on to your new adventure, Argonaut. As a Jason, I am enamored with your name choice for this organization. <laughs> and talk about tailor-made too. Argonaut seems tailor-made for these times. As you know, there is great concern about young adolescents who rely on social contacts and relationships, as we've been talking about, for their positive development as human beings in a time of social distancing and remote learning. Uh, tell us a little bit about Argonaut. I suspect it's an idea that may have predated COVID times, but certainly squarely fits regardless. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, I came to really feel that advisory programs are the heart of middle school or can be, and that that safe space where kids can have highly trusting, highly authentic, revealing conversations is an essential for their healthy social and emotional development and for their academic success too. So Argonaut is really an attempt to focus squarely on that and learn how to do better advisories and how to get that out in the world. And then COVID came along and everything that made advisories so important got even more important. As you know, as someone said memorably, kids are great at perceiving, not always great at interpreting. So they're perceiving the stress in the adult world. They're perceiving the ambient anxiety. You know, they are going through tremendous changes that are dislocating. 
but how they make sense of that, how they can orient to see it as an adventure and a challenge versus only pain, um, and how they can feel that they're going through it with others rather than disconnected and isolated makes all the difference. And that's what Argonaut is designed to do. So it's an online program where we recreate the best of those advisories that I learned how to do at Millennium. So groups of 10 students who come to deeply trust each other to learn how to be present for and with each other, to go through whatever they're each going through uh, with a great adult facilitator. And then as kind of a, a concrete backbone to that experience, we took this project that had been running through Millennium called the Essential Experiences Project that created a set of really hands-on challenges for middle school kids, challenges uh, that help them feel more independent, have a sense of agency, and that build their social-emotional intelligence. And these came from kids themselves. So it was a, a multiple-year-long project to interview kids and then interview adults and ask them to reflect on their teen years to ask really what stands out to you as the most positive non-academic experiences you had in those years with the hope that we could put as much energy toward the non-academic side as to the academic. And as a result of that, have better academics and a much happier journey through those years. And so that yielded this whole set of uh, different challenges, everything from, you know, having a journal, a practice of writing in a, a diary or journal to things that build your independence, like serving a meal for your family, opening a bank account, then into the social and emotional domain, you know, learning how to resolve a conflict, learning how to express your gratitude, learning how to manage difficult emotions or overwhelming emotions and calm yourself. And then into areas like understanding privilege, cognitive bias, uh, and ultimately to making contributions which starts from being able to forgive someone all the way up to taking action against the social injustice that you witness around you. So it's a big wide range of all these different yeah. experiences, um, but it gives the group something to orient around uh, where they can each, each student is taking on individual ones and the group is taking on certain experiences and they get to share that with each other. Something that a group needs to go on a journey with and those experiences form the kind of the contours of that journey. Is Argonaut for traditional public schools? I mean, what, what are the, con what's the context within which you are delivering this service or creating this, this opportunity? Do you partner with teachers? Do you recruit kids from different schools? How does it work? Yeah. So we're experimenting. We've uh, so far offered it with a few schools in the school uh, and also creating our own online groups that are drawn from students all over. And actually one of the fun parts has been building groups that are remarkably diverse, including geographically diverse, where you know we have students from Mexico, students from the Philippines, students from the middle and coast of the US. Um, so it's been great to see friendship groups start to form that cross so many different boundaries. So we're able to do that because of this online world that we've all been thrust into. And that, that's been mm -hmm. an exciting outcome that I hope will last. At the same time, it, I think it's really important to build these ideas into schools. If there is that one place where kids feel really seen and where they can process what's happening in their lives, then it kind of leaks out in a positive sense to the classes and academic experiences around it. And they'll show up with more passion and engagement. So we're also working on training faculty and schools uh, around implementing Argonaut as their advisory or as a part of their advisory program. 
this business of being a serial social entrepreneur, you're on your third venture. I doubt it will be your last. You have a long road ahead of you. Not being the entrepreneur type myself, I've, I've always, as you know, fashioned myself more as the second stage guys, you know, someone who can maybe take something that was already created and, and grow it bigger or help make it more sustainable or, or building the organizational infrastructure that is required to, to do that. I've always been captivated by the entrepreneurial sort, uh, such as you. I think a, a lot of people have that entrepreneurial spirit, that drive and that industriousness, but you seem to have other qualities that have helped set you up for success in getting things started. Have you reflected on that? What, what are some of the assets or qualities in yourself or skills that you've developed over time that make you a, a good starter of things? I've I've wondered and struggled with it, frankly. In fact, before launching into Argonaut, I was really trying not to be an entrepreneur for a while because it's it's intense, and I have three young kids. Um, but I I've come to feel like it's almost a it's an affliction <laughs> that can't be avoided. Which is to say, you know, as an entrepreneur, I have a lot of ideas pop up, and I can't bear to let them all die. <laughs> like some of them. I just want them to exist. And uh, I, before I know it, I find myself committing to make them exist, always with tremendous naivete about how hard it's actually going to be. And so I, I would point to that naivete as one of the primary uh, qualities of an entrepreneur. And I, I say that, you know, in all seriousness, that it's you know, the ability to leap into a future idea of what something will be and, and to leap over the tremendously difficult road uh, to get there. And then commit yourself in such a way that you have no choice but to go down that road, even when you realize just how hard it is. So in some sense, I, I'm laughing, but could be crying at times with that too. You know, that, that is the joy and challenge of being an entrepreneur. The essence of it is that I, I like to try to get things simple. I don't always succeed in making them simple, but I like to try to boil it down to some basic ideas, in this case, about human potential. You know, what are we here to do what are we what are we capable of and particularly working with young people you know what are they driven to do and when i think i have some small understanding of that then it immediately translates into you know the structures that we want to create around them as schools as programs uh, and as soon as it gets into that stage it's it's in experimentation mode and Frankly, for all the organizations I've run, I think they they remained in experimentation mode, and I, I hope that that was a strength. Mm. That you know the rate of change may be highest in the first year or two, and and then gradually stabilize. But right. I, I don't want to try to create static uh, organizations. I think, especially when you're working with young people, they should be always evolving. So a lot of the work is is also helping the adults there be comfortable with change and evolution, because young people are for the most part, inherently, uh, they in some ways don't have a choice. They're changing so much. And as adults who want to accompany them on that journey of change, we have to be ready to change quite a bit as well. Finally, Chris, if there is one thing, one bit of advice based on your experience working with middle school youth in a variety of contexts that you would offer to educators, both in school and in after school and in summer programs, of things they either ought to know or ought to be doing, what would it be? The one thing I would say, and having worked with many amazing middle school educators and hired many, 
is to be comfortable being weird. And I think the best middle school teachers are weird. And behind that is the truth that we're all weird. Some of us are just hiding that and mm-hmm. others are being mm-hmm. real about it. And we all know middle schoolers are great at kind of seeing through adult phoniness. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking for authenticity and the permission that it gives them to be themselves and to experiment and, and tinker with their identity. So the one piece I'd say is to invite educators to be themselves, even when it's quirky or not perfect, and model that authenticity for the young people who really need to see it in the adults around them. Chris, it's been such fun talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. My huge pleasure. Great talking with you, Jason. That was Chris Baum, founder of Argonaut. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Baum, C-H-R-I-S-B-A-L-M-E, and Argonaut on the web at argonaut.school. Lessons in Adolescence features conversations with researchers, practitioners, program developers, and advocates for young adolescents in the middle school years. Recently, I talked with Laura Ross, the 2020 National Counselor of the Year, about her work at Five Forks Middle School in Gwinnett County, Georgia, where she has been spearheading an array of approaches to create a connectedness culture. I find that um, even if there's a, a struggle sometimes with one teacher and a student in the relationship and they're having a hard time connecting, there's another teacher that really connects with that student, so they're always able to kind of help in that arena, and that student does have another place where they feel connected, and it can that person can help build with the other the other teacher as well. And so I think we have such a mindset that there's somebody in the building that can support in, in the rest of us kind of connecting with a student as well. You can catch all of my conversation with Laura in a previous episode. Thanks for joining the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of Remaking Middle School, an initiative that seeks to transform the learning and development experience for young adolescents in the middle school years. Remaking Middle School brings together good educational practice in school and out of school with the latest developmental science. You can learn about Remaking Middle School or find more resources about the topics of this podcast on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org or learn more about the founding partner organizations, the University of Virginia's Youth Next Center on the web at curry.virginia.edu slash youth-next, N-E-X, or on Twitter at youth underscore next, and the Association for Middle Level Education on the web at amle.org or on Twitter at amle. The Lessons in Adolescence podcast is produced by Abby Gillespie and me, Jason Cascarino. You can listen to or download each episode at the Remaking Middle School website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.